Hey, let me start off by saying thank you for all of y'all last week. So many of y'all uh, at every campus, really, you, you, you identified that one mountain. Uh, and you're just like, you know what, for the next six weeks, we're going to go like all in. I want to go from... I want to go from I want to go from coping back to hoping again. All right, and uh, thanks for doing that. We started this series last week, and uh, if you had, if you weren't here last week, and there's a display in the lobby. It's got a bunch of rocks of what was done last week, but also some empty ones right there that if you want to put in there, we're going to be just jot that one thing down that's heaviest on your heart. We pray for them during the week. And then what you're saying is, you know what, I'm going to pray that God would do this for the glory of God and the good of other people. And it's, it's run the gamut. You all were very, 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 very specific in so many ways. And uh, thanks for doing that. Last week, if you weren't here, we looked at a guy that actually kind of set the tone. It's the place where the guy has a sick son and he's, he doesn't think it's been a long, long time and he lost hope that anything could be different. You know, Jesus does a miracle in that family's life. And then he's the guy that when he was doubting whether anything could be different, he's like, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Help that part that I have ceased to hope in this area. And you guys identified those. And it ran everything from, uh, uh, you know, please restore my marriage to uh, help me with this addiction uh, to uh, my prodigal to so many, so many areas. And um, thank you for doing that. That takes some courage and some vulnerability. Uh, We're going to be very, uh, you know, we'll be very, uh, what's the word, uh, confidential uh, with those. But at the same time, we want to we want to pray for you uh, and pray that God would do something great. All right, so here, last week we kind of set it up, and then this next four or five weeks we're going to look at some specific areas uh, that are common mountains that we all face to some degree or the other. And, um, you know, when I think about the one for today, uh, for me what actually came to mind was uh, thinking about that check engine light on your car. If you remember, uh, I remember the first car I ever had, man, it was a Cutlass Salon, and that thing, uh, that thing had a check engine light, and it would come on. It would come on, and I'm like, what? And not, not being a car guy that much, I was like, I, you know, first time it came on, I like popped the hood and looked in there. I'm like, yep, engine's here. It is here. It, it is here, you know. Tap this, tap that, pull this plug, make sure the windshield wiper fluid is full, do all that kind of stuff, close it, but it, it just never, it never went off. And what I came to understand was that check engine engine light was a a general thing saying there's something wrong under the hood. You need to have somebody dig in there and figure out what it is that is making something wrong under the hood. And when I looked at some of those rocks, you had everything from, you know, I'm a perfectionist to I hate myself to I hate other people to I'm super critical to I have no joy to I have helpless feelings of defeat even to the fact that I'm hurting myself or I'm cutting myself physically, all those things. And I thought, you know what? Those are symptoms. They are mountains, but in some ways they are, they are symptomatic of something under the hood. And that thing under the hood that we all have to deal with to some degree or the other and that we're going to deal with today is actually called shame. It's the mountain of shame. And I'm going to agree on the front end, it is a very, just like last week, this week's pretty heavy as well. When you talk about the mountain of shame, oftentimes people... They, they confuse uh, what guilt is and what shame is. And while they are cousins and while guilt not dealt with can actually lead to shame, guilt and shame are not the same thing, right? Uh, guilt is about what you did. Shame is about who you are, how you see yourself. When you think about guilt, it's about action. When you think about shame, Shame is it's much deeper than that. It's, it's the inside stuff. It's the residue, it's the residue of your life. Uh, one counselor said this way, he said, guilt is like a stain on a shirt. 
It's like a stain on a shirt. It can be a bad stain. It can be a small stain. But by and large, if I do enough stuff, I can get the stain out. But shame, shame is different. Shame is like a disfigurement. It's like your face is disfigured that you can't get away from it. Everywhere you go, every time you look in the mirror, every time you go somewhere, people notice that right off the bat. And you, you, you walk around in fear. Somebody is going to look at me differently and they're going to respond to me differently. Uh, one uh, counselor I read this week said that actually the whole Bible, to some degree or another, is about how God deals with our shame. If you uh, know your Bible very well, we, uh, the first few chapters of the Bible, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of a book called Genesis, chapter 2 ends this way, and it says they, they, were, they were naked and they were unashamed. And this is Adam and Eve, they're walking around naked, no shame at all. And then chapter 3 happens because you know, the whole the whole Garden of Eden doesn't last that long. Chapter 3 happens, the fall happens. Uh, one church father said this, before they sinned, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed because they were clothed in God's love and acceptance. After the fall, one effect was a sense of shame over that nakedness. They had always been naked, but without God's approval, now they felt naked. And so what you see is in some degree or another, they try to cover up their shame. they I got to cover myself. God's there. Well, they'd always been naked, but now they felt ashamed of their nakedness. And so they battled shame and we battle shame as well. And you can battle shame for a few different reasons. And again, I understand the, I understand the depth to some degree that some of you deal with this. So I'm going to try to be precise because shame can come from a variety of areas. Three areas, the three main areas shame can come from. It can come from something that you do. It can come from an action that you take. Um, I think it's psychiatrists, they call this, when we fall short of our ideal self. You know, we've got this picture of the kind of man we should be. You know, I should be this kind of woman. I should have these strong moral values. I should have this strong self-will. Some of you that especially are like type A, get it done kind of people, you, know, you have this ideal person. I should be the kind of man that should say no to temptation. And then when you don't say no to temptation or you have that major fallout and you have that affair or cheat on your spouse, whatever, you feel, you, you feel guilty. But if you don't deal with your guilt biblically, it turns into shame because you're like, I'm better than that. I'm better than that. It can lead to self-hate, low self-esteem, all those things which we're just going to sum up and call it shame. A second thing is not just something that you do. It can actually be caused by something done to you. And that's by far the saddest. The saddest is something done to you, some kind of, a lot of times, abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Something is done to you, and you're treated a certain way or talked like you are damaged goods. And what happens is, is without some gospel identification and understanding that, then what was said about you or what was done to you becomes the residue of your soul. And that's who you look at. That's who you feel. I was treated like trash, so I must be trash. One girl said this, quote, I was raped when I was nine, and for some time I messed around with other boys sexually. I'm ashamed of this and have only told two people about the rape. Listen to her. I know I was just a child, but it still makes me think I'm a horrible person. Because of what I did, I feel dirty, and I don't think anyone will really love me. That's called shame. That's called shame. It's called shame because of something that was done to you. 
And the third way it can come is something that you had no control over. Infertility, sometimes people feel like shame, particularly back in Bible days when that was looked at as God's blessing on your life and God's favor on your life. And if you were infertile, it was God's curse on your life. Oftentimes they would look, that's not biblical, that's just the way they culturally oftentimes looked at it. Maybe, sometimes, maybe you have a disability, maybe you were cheated on when you had no idea it was even going on. There's a guy named Ed Welch, I uh, read part of his book called Shame Interrupted this week. And he has probably one of the best definitions of shame. And he says, shame is the deep sense that you are inherently flawed, unacceptable, unworthy of love because of something you've done, something done to you, or something associated with you. Now, what we need for shame, what we really need for any mountain, but particularly for shame, is a heavy, heavy dose of the gospel. And what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at a woman who was filled with shame on the front end. Let me tell you, there's a lot of cultural innuendo, a lot of cultural implications that maybe at the first reading you don't see the shame that he did. So my job, I'm going to try to show you in that culture the shame that she felt and how Jesus lifted her up out of her shame and can lift you up out of your shame today as well. And so again, if you don't have a Bible or if you do have a Bible, go to Luke 8. I'm going to have the, most of the verses on the screen. Uh, context is this. If you look in Luke 8, super busy time. Jesus is super busy. He's ministering. He's doing all this stuff. He's on the way actually to help a pretty well-known guy named Jairus to help his daughter. And he gets interrupted. And here's how the story goes. Let me walk you through it. Luke 8, verse 43. And it says, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, the book of Luke uh, was penned by a guy named, who do you think it was penned by? Luke. Okay, so Luke, actually, his background was in medicine. And so because of that, you're going to see him treat some things even a little differently than, let's say, Mark does. And in this case, he makes a few details, and here's what he says. She had a discharge of blood for 12 years years. We don't know what it was. Was it uh, some kind of uncontrollable menstrual flow? Was it some type of hemorrhage that was happening? We don't know. But in that day and time, huge implications for her life, as I'll explain in a second. And it says a couple more details. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So let's just check off all the boxes of despair and shame and mountains, all right? So uh, first of all, she's sick. She's not just sick, she's sick chronically. Some of you actually probably have chronic pain. This lady had chronic pain for 12 years. And because of that, she's unable to have children. She is ceremonially unclean according to Jewish law, which means that she wasn't supposed to even be in public when this is going on. And so for 12 years, if she ever did go out in public, she would have to kind of hide because she really wasn't even supposed to be out among the crowd. So she's not only not supposed to be out in public, she can't go to worship, worship God with other people. She can't be touched. She can't be hugged. Nobody can put their hand on her shoulder and say, hey, let's pray for you. She's an outcast. She is lonely. The hope she had for her family Maybe she grew up as a little girl thinking, you know what, it's going to be great, and my wedding's going to be like this, and this is how my family's going to go, and I'm going to raise a family for the fear of God, and all this stuff was going on, and all those hopes are, all those hopes are gone, all right? She is definitely gone from hoping to coping. Life in the community that she once thought would be there, that's gone. She's broke, so she doesn't have any money at all because she spent it all trying to move the mountain. 
She's trying to get the mountain moved, and she's trying hard. She's done all that she could do. Mark actually is, shows that the doctors might have had a little more of a nefarious motive because it says that, you know what, it's, it's the idea that maybe the doctors even took advantage of her as she tried to get well. Maybe took her money, maybe took her innocence, we don't know. But Mark's like, you know what, the doctors are doing some bad stuff. And suffering is hard. Suffering is hard. Suffering in isolation is brutal. And so she eats by herself, she prays by herself, she worships by herself, she probably lives by herself, and that's her mountain. She hears that Jesus has come to town. She doesn't know exactly who he is, or maybe she's heard rumors, but it's a great example of one of the two things that keeps people away from Jesus, that she actually plows through. Some people never come to Jesus because of pride. Pride that, you know what, I don't need Jesus. I'm a self-made woman. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I'll be kind of religious. I'll go to church. I'll put a nickel in the plate. I'll do all those stuff. But oftentimes, in order for that person to actually get their attention focused back on God, God's got to do something like pull the rug out from under you. And when you're lying flat on your back, finally you're able to look up to God. We have that testimony all the time. You actually heard it in Savannah's story. But even more so than pride is, is, is shame. Shame says, you know what, I want to go to Jesus. I want to get help. I want things to be different. I want the mountain to move. But if I take it to him, I'm fearful that if he knows the truth, he will not help. That's shame. So here's how the rest of the story goes. Verse 44. She came up behind him. Behind him, you get the idea she's slinking through the crowd probably because she's not supposed to be there. She comes up behind him. And she touches, it says, the fringe of his garment. Fringe is kind of a, it's more, probably more of a tassel because rabbis would wear these kind of cloaks and they'd have these little tassels that would show what kind of rabbi they were. And came up to him, it's like, it's like almost like ringing a bell. It's like pulls, pulls on his tassel. If I can just get close enough to him, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, then things can be different. And sure enough, she touches the fringe of his garment and immediately, immediately the discharge of blood ceased. Now check out verse 45 and 46. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Who was it that touched me? Now normally when Jesus asks a question, it's not for information. So I would read this as a rhetorical question. It's like I'm going to ask this question not really for an answer, but to, it's kind of like when he goes looking for Adam and Eve, and he's like, Adam and Eve, where are you? He knows where they are. He doesn't need GPS to figure out where Adam and Eve are. He's asking them to ask themselves the question, where am I? And so more than likely, this is a rhetorical question, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter, who never misses a chance to put his foot in his mouth. I mean, this is why we love Peter, because we are Peter. I mean, it's a huge crowd, everybody's around him, and then Peter, wasn't even, he really wasn't even asked specifically a question, all right? But that never stopped Peter from giving an answer. And so Peter says, Master, the crowd surrounds you, and you are pressing and they are pressing in on you. Thank you, Captain Obvious Peter. Thank you. That's a, your insight is, is amazing that you would actually know that. And here's what I want you to see, though. It says that when she touched his, this is super key. When she touches the hem of his garment, when she pulls it, when she expresses her faith by reaching out to Jesus. Remember, last week we said faith is an internal conviction that is met with an external action. It's like, you know what? I believe God in here. But if I really believe God, I'm actually going to make an external action to show that. Notice in here, she does not make Jesus unclean. Jesus makes her clean. Super key. Because this doesn't happen anywhere else. 
She does not make Jesus unclean. Jesus makes her clean. Now, this doesn't happen here. I mean, if you've got a cold or something and you're around people, their health doesn't rub off on you and all of a sudden make you healthy. Your sickness, your uncleanliness, it makes the rest of us sick. So if your little, if your little uh, junior's got the flu and, man, he's running like 101 fever, you know, don't bring him up here to the nursery thinking, you know what, the health of the kids in the nursery will make little junior well. No, little junior's going to make everybody sick, all right? That's what you think, man. Just man, please visit another church, all right? That's, that's not ever going to work when that happens. So what happened? You're like, well, what happens? What happens to her uncleanness? What happens to her uncleanness? I mean, that's the whole question. That's the question this book answers, all right? What happens to her uncleanness? Remember, he's on his way to the cross where he's going to bear her sin, bear her shame. The whole Bible's testimony is answering the question, what can wash away my sin? Is that not the question? What can wash away my sin? The gospel's answer is, you know what? It's the cleanliness of Jesus that can make you clean. Your uncleanliness is not going to make Jesus unclean, but he will choose to take your uncleanliness on the cross so that you can then have his cleanliness. 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way. It says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what it's saying. He's going to take his cleanliness and put it to your account, your uncleanliness, and put it to his account. So when he dies on the cross, that's why Galatians says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then here, uh, basically, Jesus takes her uncleanliness. She goes home in peace. That's what I hope happens today. Jesus takes your uncleanliness, and you go home in peace. Because look at this one last verse, verse 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came, she came trembling. Trembling's a great word. It's the idea of shaking or quaking with fear. All right, some of you guys that are hunters, maybe you've had like what they call buck fever. Buck fever's that deal. When you get that, you're sitting there, and you're calm, and you're calm, and you finally get that buck in the sights, and all of a sudden, that heart that was going like 55 beats a minute, and you see that big thing, and you're like, oh, it's like going 90 beats a minute. And you're, you're trying to control. You're breathing, and you are shaking because you understand this is it, and she's that times 10. I'm quaking. I'm shivering. I'm terrified. Will he reject me? Will he reject me too? Will he shame me? Will he be angry that I took my uncleanliness and put it on him? And here's the way the rest of the verse goes. Falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. What did that conversation look like? And how she had been immediately healed. I mean, she's already preaching a sermon. She didn't go home. She went and she was preaching a sermon. And then here's what verse, uh, here's what verse 48 says. And he said to her, now this is like, you've got to underline this in your Bible, highlight it, do something. And he said to her, daughter, daughter, this is the only time Jesus addresses anybody with this specific term in all of the Gospels. Now she doesn't even know it yet, but this is like a picture of the beginning of what is called the doctrine of adoption. Adoption is that Jesus, when you reach out to him by faith, he adopts you into his family as his son, as his daughter. And here's what he says. He says, daughter, amazing, daughter, your faith has made you well. Made you well is not like an awesome translation because actually it's the same word that means to save. 
Okay, sozo, S-O-Z-O, sozo, it means to save or deliver. So literally, it's like your faith has delivered you. Now you go in peace. Old Testament, you go in shalom. You go in peace. You go in tranquility. Things have been made right between you and God. That is peaceful for you. And so here's the whole question, the central question of the Bible, the central question really of every religion is this. What is it like when I stand in my guilt and in my shame before a holy and righteous God? That's the question. That's the question that terrified her. What is it going to be like when I go up there and I'm exposed in all of my shame and all of my guilt with somebody who knows all that I've done? What's that going to be like when I'm exposed in front of a holy God? Well, here's what it's like. When she reached out in faith, he says, daughter, I love it. He doesn't say stranger, he doesn't say sister, he doesn't say friend, doesn't say ma'am, says daughter. You and I might say sweetheart. It's a term of kindness, it's a term of immense intimacy and relationship. It's a term some of you dads, it's a term some of you dads would say to your little four-year-old little girl who's running around the house, you're like daughter, sweetheart, honey, come here. And here's the point, as awesome as the healing was, as awesome as the healing was, Jesus wants her to know there's even a greater thing. And the greater thing is that she is loved and she is precious and she is cherished and her faith has made her well. So here's what I want to just say to you and then we'll get some application in here. Those whose shame comes from something you have done. You've done something. It might have been last week, it might have been spring break, it might have been a night you wanted to forget, it might have been a long time ago. If it comes from something you've done, mistakes you've made, Jesus offers you peace through the substitutionary death of the cross. He went to the cross so you can go home in peace. That's awesome. All right? He pays. You're declared innocent. When you touch Jesus by faith, he takes your guilt, he takes your shame, he takes your penalty, and he passes on to you new life and peace. For those of you that are like, it wasn't something I did, it comes from something done to me, you gotta hear Jesus' response to this woman because it's his response to you. And he calls her, he calls her daughter. He calls her daughter. So here's the first thing I, you gotta get down. When we talk about how do you move the mountain of shame, this is probably the one I'm gonna spend the most time on, the other one I'm just gonna touch on. I mean, this would be something we could spend an entire series on. Actually, I think we have before is that is you have to continually claim, I mean continually, this is not like, I'm gonna say a little deal here at the end of the service and it's gonna be, this is something you've gotta go back to over and over and over and over and over and over and over. You've gotta continually claim a gospel-centered identity. A gospel-centered identity. Identity is the label. Now the world loves to label you. Now, it might label you something good, it might label you something bad. It might label you, you know, it's like, you know, it might success or it might label you failure, all right? It might label you winner, it might label you loser. That's just a label other people put on you. Others of you label yourself. Deep down when nobody's looking and your head hits the pillow or you look in the mirror in the morning, you're like, you know what, I don't, I don't like what I see. Now, granted, some of you like what you see actually a little bit too much. You're like, man, that guy's too sexy for his shirt. I like that guy. You know, that's not the, an that's not the answer either. But shame says, you know what, that person right there, that person right there is unlovable. That's what shame does. That's what shame says to you. And so here's what I just, I wanna try to get down to you as best I can. You've gotta be able to say, I am not what others 
say that I am. I am not even who I think I am, and I'm definitely not what somebody else has done to me. One preacher put it in this kind of crescendo when he says, I am not defective or damaged or broken or flawed or dirty or ugly or impure or disgusting or unlovable or weak or pitiful or insignificant or worthless and definitely not unwanted. Who am I? I am who Christ says I am. I am forgiven. I am free. I am redeemed. I am healed. I am new. I am chosen. I am changed. I am blessed. I am beloved. I am complete and I am a child of God. So what you've got to be able to say is I am not what other people have done to me. I'm not what others have said about me. I'm not even what the voices inside my head whisper about me. I am solely what Jesus Christ has declared over my life. That's who you are. Now, what you've got to understand is what has Jesus Christ declared over my life? That is called your identity. That's who you are. What has Jesus said over my life? Now, again, what I'm talking about here is that Christ follower who still battles shame. This past, uh, this past week, I had a couple of cool, uh, I had a couple of cool uh, chances to speak to two different groups, all of them like super young. All right. One of them was on Wednesday was at uh, North Greenville University, which, man, that place is sweet. Man, I never even knew that was there. That place was, man, you had a thousand college students going crazy for the Lord in chapel. Man, that is like awesome. I've been in other chapels when it's like, man, it is pushing the cart up the hill. This was like pushing it down the hill, super easy. They were on fire. But another group was on Tuesday night and got to speak to our monthly vertical, which is basically our young professionals, 20 to 30-year-olds, all right? If you're like a dude going in there and you're 60, you're a creeper, stay away, all right? So it's not for you. It's not for you. It's young adult. You're not young anymore. Sure, I got an email about that. I'm just saying that's not for you. It's for the young adults. But here's, here's what we did Tuesday. What we did Tuesday is uh, a Q&A. Now, doing this a while, you don't take Q&A from the floor. <laughs> so I understand. You don't know what's going to come from the floor. So what they did is they wrote them down, and I got them a day before, and one of them was so insightful. One of them was so excellent because there's a bunch of different questions about all different kinds of things. But one of them, I thought, man, that is like a really good question. And the question was, what is the most important part of our identity in Christ? It's like, wow. It's not just how important is our identity in Christ. It says, what is the most important aspect of our identity in Christ. Those that have actually come to faith in Christ, what's the thing? If you miss all the other ones, what's the thing? Now, fortunately, I started working on this message Tuesday, but it reminded me, honestly, the most they're all super important and they all dovetail together. But in some ways, you could say that the doctrine, the teaching about God's adoption of you into his family for practical working out your faith is the most important doctrine you can actually grab hold of to live in Christian victory. J.I. Packer actually said as much when he said this. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how well, how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his whole outlook on life, he does not understand Christianity very well. That's good. See what he's saying? Now, let, me, let me make clear on this one. The anecdote, if you will, for guilt. Remember, guilt and shame are different. Guilt is I made a mistake. I feel bad about what I just did. I need to do something. And what you do, what you do with that is you repent and confess. Uh, confess is the word in the New Testament of homologeo, meaning I'm going to say the same thing about that sin that God does. In 1 John 1, 9, if I will confess my sins, he is faithful and righteous and will cleanse me from all, from all unrighteousness. So that's the anecdote. 
The anecdote for guilt is what we're going to call the doctrine of justification. Okay, you need to get, this is like, this next 45 seconds is the Christian life in a nutshell. Guilt is dealt with by the doctrine of justification. Romans 5.1 says we've been justified by faith and given peace with God uh, through Jesus Christ. All right? Justified means just as if you've never sinned. It's a legal term. It means if you, when you come to Christ, all the stuff, all the account that was held against you, every sin. Now think about it this way. When you think about what was Jesus doing on the cross, every foul thing you ever did, every foul thing everybody ever, ever did, all right, every molestation, every abortion, every, everything everybody did is being poured out on Jesus on the cross right then, all right? That's why he's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Doctrine justification means when you turn to Christ, all of your part in that, all of your part in that gets put on Jesus and all of Jesus' righteousness and his resume gets put to your account, all right? Another doctrine is called imputation. He imputes. He gives you his righteousness. That's awesome. But when it comes to the anecdote for shame, even more helpful than the doctrine of justification is the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption says, I know you and I still love you. You've messed up and I still love you. Why? Because you're my daughter. You're my daughter. Now, what do we do when we have a little kid who falls? When you have your little kid, let's say you're walking down the street and you're holding hands and they like, maybe they jerk their hand away from your hand and run a couple of steps and boom, fall down. What do you do? As a parent, what do you do? You go over there and mock them? You st- how stupid are you to fall down? I mean, what side of the family did you come from? You obviously have your mother's athletic genes, not your fa- no, no, Nobody does that. Nobody does that. You go over there and you help them back up and you like dust them off and wipe away the tears and let's do better next time and hold on to my hand a little tighter and, t- and then we'll just walk and have a great time. Romans 8.15 says this. Our, God has given us a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. Now I understand in this group right here, we have a wide variety of experiences when it comes to the word Father. I understand the brokenness of our culture. And maybe you had a dad that was super distant. Maybe you had a dad that was even abusive. Maybe you had a dad like me who dies early and you're like, well, you know, and you're kind of still jacked up a little bit from, from all of that. But don't judge your earthly father by your heavenly father. Judge your heavenly father by your earthly father. Okay? Your heavenly father is perfect and compassionate and all-knowing. The best of our heavenly fathers, all they are is echoes of what your real heavenly father is. And just take that word Abba. That was not some, when he says cry out to him Abba, that is not talking about some hokey 70s band, okay? That's not what it's talking about, all right? It's actually the word for dada or daddy. And every language has those intimate terms of a little kid talking to his dad. You might be Papa or Dada. I think in Turkish it's like, Baba or something like that. It's the idea of this term of intimacy. That's my, that's my, that's my parent right there. And those are awesome terms. And who gives them those names? The kid does. You understand that? It's like some of y'all enlightened me a month or so ago when I was like, hey, we're having a granddaughter. Like, yeah, May come and it's going to be granddaughter. It's going to be idolatry because I am going to worship that girl. Anyway, anyway, I said, hey, thinking about what, what should I have her call me? What should I have her call me? And y'all had some goofy things as well. It's like, gramps, like that's horrible. That's, I, 
Sorry if you're Gramps. I, anyway, um, I'm going for like Papa or Pops. It's probably pretty cool. Pops is pretty cool. But a lot of y'all had good insight I never thought of. She's going to call you. What she's going to call you. She's going to call you what she's going to call you. Just call me. That's all. I just, just call me. That's all I want you to do. But you call me whatever you want. And when you look in this story, when he calls her daughter, and then she declares what he just did, nothing drives away shame faster than being fully known and fully loved. You understand that? Nothing should drive away your shame if you're a daughter of Almighty God through repentance and faith in Jesus, all right? And if you're not, you, should, you could be right now. I mean, right now, if you're sitting there going, I don't know if I have that kind of relationship with God. Then, man, you don't have to sit there and come to this altar. You don't have to go out to, right now, in your heart, you can look straight ahead. You don't even need to close your eyes. You know, prayer counts even if your eyes are open. But basically, it's like, you know what? Admit you're a sinner. God, I'm a sinner. I've broken your law. I've broken your heart. All right. Believe that what Jesus did on that cross counted for you. When he said, it is finished, somehow, somehow, that counted for me. And then confess in your heart, you know what? I surrender to the lordship of Jesus. I surrender. As all that I know, I wave the white flag. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. I ask you to come, and I embrace you by faith. You know what? The Bible says, all the call in the name of the Lord will be, will be, will be, not might be, not should be, not could be. You will be saved. You will be saved. Same word up here. Sozo, saved, delivered, rescued. All right? If you do that, what you then have got to understand is, all right, God has not just taken away my guilt, he can take away my shame because he knows you and he loves you. And that is so rare. What's more common is somebody loves you, but doesn't know you. They love you. That's kind of like dating right now. Some of you are dating like, I love you. I love you. Really? Really? You never even see me without any makeup. So how can you really say I love you? Okay. I love you without saying, without really, I know you. That's just, that's sentimentality is what that is. That's a Hallmark card, okay? The other one, though, is I know you, and I don't love you. That's brutality is what that is. But I know you, and I love you, and I'm not leaving you. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus did for you, living the life that you and I should have lived, dying the death in our place, saying, and then to this person, you are my, you are my daughter, like, I just really struggle with this. Or you've got to figure out, how do I let the gospel volume get cranked up and all the other stuff get turned down? Because you've got a lot of voices that are going to go, condemned, shameful, loser, etc. And you've got to turn the volume up and go, you know what? I've been set free. I am forgiven. I am favored. I am heard. I am loved. I am a child of God. And the only way to do that is turn it up. It's hard to make the voices go away, but you can turn the volume up, correct? I'll give you one example of how this happens. When you fall, when you fall, I'm not saying plan on falling, I'm just saying you're gonna fall at times. And your understanding of the gospel is gonna show, or what you do when you fall, oftentimes shows your understanding of the gospel just as much as if you choose and do not fall. Here's what I mean. When you fall, when you fall, when you're like that little four-year-old and you fall down, you fall down, you will, both your enemy and your God will point out your sin. You understand that? Both will point out your sin. You did it, you did it, you did it. 
unless you have no conscience whatsoever, unless your conscience is so seared that you don't even hear it anymore, if you have in any degree a conscience at all, you did it, you did it, you did it, that can either be conviction from a loving God or condemnation from an enemy that hates you. Conviction is typically very, very specific. Condemnation oftentimes is pretty general, just that residue of shame over your life. Sometimes it is specific. Remember what you did two years ago on spring break? Now you want to teach a connect group class? Now they're asking you to make a video? Now they're asking you to greet people? Now they're asking you to do X, Y, Z? What happens if what happened two years ago at spring break in South Padre Island, what if that comes out? That's called shame. That's called shame. You've repented, you've confessed. But that's called shame. That's always going to be there unless you let the gospel speak louder. Condemnation tears you down. Conviction from God wants to rebuild what you have damaged and what we've damaged in our sin. Condemnation is this is who you are. You are your sin. You are your sin. Conviction does not say you are your sin. Conviction doesn't even, conviction points to what Jesus has done. And it's like, okay, let's rebuild this. Condemnation talks about this is your identity. And actually, conviction is about your identity, but says, hey, let's help you up. Let me, let me help you live up to your identity. Man, you're a daughter of God. You've had the approval. I love you. I have all your secrets, and I still love you. You don't need to give yourself to some boy who just wants to use you, okay? Over here, I love you. You've got my approval because of what Christ did on the cross. You don't need to cheat your customers in order to get a promotion and get a plaque on the wall. You don't need to do that. That's called building you up and going from your identity. So uh, here's what one guy said. I can't remember who, wrote, who said it. It said, every minute you're spending dwelling on your past is a moment you could be agreeing with God about your future. And that's, that's, that's cash money right there, okay? Every moment I'm like, past, past, past. Go to what, what does God say about me? Let me just briefly mention this last one. Is you got to go into some community. I had never really even thought about this till this week. Do you remember that? Do you realize that all these people you see in the Gospels, blind Bartimaeus, the dad from last week that had had this son that he was so grieved over, the lady here, those are real people with real names, and they were part of the early church that turned the whole world upside down. They were like the nucleus, they were the start of the church that now went everywhere, including coming down here to Western North Carolina. But 2,000 years ago, it was just a bunch of people who had interacted with Jesus, and Jesus changed them. I mean, think about that. You got blind Bartimaeus, man. He might be leading mission trips for First Baptist Jerusalem, okay? You got, you got the, the dad from last week. He's teaching a class on faith on Wednesday nights, okay? You got a guy, uh, you got the Gadarene demoniac who got healed, man. I don't know what he's doing. Uh, he's uh, probably in music, all right? He's doing something with music, all right? The whole idea is this. Here's a lady. She got delivered from her shame, and then God used her in a great way. We're talking about her right now. Two quick questions. Number one, do you do your part to make sure our church stays a church that a woman like this can walk into and feel loved? Do you do your part? You say, we got to be a church, but you know, all we, the church is you, all right? Now, granted, there's a bunch of services all morning long all over Western North Carolina, but do you do your part? Are you the kind of person that someone could say, man, I'm really struggling with this? Or do you kind of put on an air of, well, I kind of got my stuff together and I'm kind of doing pretty good. And no, we're all broken. We're broken people who were broken before a holy God. And if you know Jesus, he has gloriously resurrected you and is putting you and sanctifying you back piece by piece by piece. The bottom line is your church that way. Connect group teachers, is your connect group like that? 
Do you have people in your connect group that don't look all polished, looking all awesome with makeup and Lulu and all this kind of good-looking stuff on? Do you have it where, you know what, she would be welcome? Because bottom line, it comes back to, if I'm going to deal with this, i got to deal with my shame. And the only way you deal with the shame is through the gospel, and the gospel gives us a grace-based identity. So here's what I'm going to do. I kind of wrote this up. I was thinking, how do I want to do this? We actually had a song, and we we're going to do a big song and all this stuff. We're going to do it differently. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to read this to you. And I, you're like, what's the title? <laughs> I couldn't come up with a good title. So the title of this is, remember how somebody said, well, shame on you. Shame on you. My kindergartner teacher would say that all the time. Shame on you, Bruce Frank. Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on you. I can't remember what her name is, but shame on her for uh, telling me that. So here, uh, here's what it was. So this is not shame on you. <laughs> okay, this is not shame on you. I'm going to read it. And I'm going to try to emphasize the correct ones. And then we're going to do kind of like uh, some of you guys that are married, you got, you know, you stand up in front of somebody and that preacher leads you and, you know, do you take Claudette to be your lawfully wedded wife to have and hold and they, all that kind of stuff. But then it says, I, Robert, I, Robert, take thee, Claudette, take thee, Claudette. So I'm going to try to do that well. But let me tell you what the, uh, let me tell you what the vows are going to be from the front end. I am not, I am not my sin or my shame. That's not who I am. I'm not saying I don't have sin. I'm saying that's not who I am. As a matter of fact, if you're a Christ follower, that's not even your identity. So I am not my sin and I am not my shame. I am what Jesus has declared over me. That's super important. What has he declared over me? Has he called you son? Has he called you daughter? Has he called you forgiven? Has he called you chosen? Has he called you those things? So, uh, Here's a, we could have, I could have listed 50, but for space and uh, to the point, here's four or five that I picked out. I am forgiven. That's the idea of kind of dealing with our guilt. Again, is your guilt gone? Do you know Jesus? If not, please don't leave this place. You're like, man, I know Jesus. He's forgiven my guilt. He's got a lot of work to do, but my guilt is gone because of what he did on the cross. I am forgiven. I'm adopted. Get hold of that, the shame starts to go away. I am new, I am changed, I am loved, I am redeemed, a child of God. I am who God says I am. That's the key. Primarily, you're not who your parents say you are, you're not who your past says you are, you're not even who your performance says you are, you are who God says you are, and bottom line, that's what's gotta matter most. So here's what we're gonna do. Why don't you stand to your feet, and I'm gonna go through this and I want you to do it with me, all right? So I want you to use a, I want you to use a little bit of a guttural voice, all right? Use your diaphragm. Let's not. This is not something to say uh, apologetically or shyly. This is something to say in faith. This is a step of faith. If not, we'll do it one more time. All right, we're gonna be here all day. Just kidding. Um, that's what she used to. Kindergarten teacher flashback. Sorry. Um, okay, count of three. One, two. Three, I am not my sin or my shame. I am what Jesus has declared over me. I am forgiven, adopted, new, changed, loved, redeemed, a child of God. I am who God says I am. All right, pretty good, pretty good, pretty good. Go up one notch, all right, ready? Just one notch, don't sing, don't shout. You can shout a little bit, but just, okay, one, two, three. I am not my sin or my shame. I am what Jesus has declared over me. 
I am forgiven, adopted, new, changed, loved, redeemed, a child of God. And then hey, a little bit of swag, this last line, okay? I am who God says I am.